One of the things that I'd like to start with this morning is just a kind of a question on how is it that we evaluate uh, a group or how is it that we judge people? Some things are easy. For example, uh, not bragging here, but if a certain high school beats every other team in lacrosse all year long and then wins every game in the playoffs, they're the state champions. Go Big Blue. However, we would say that that evaluation would mean that they're the best team in the state, but there may be some people at the bottom of the mountain who might want to argue with that. I even think to the place that I go and work out, and one of the things that they do is that they, they have an app, and you're supposed to, to put in how much you lift and how long it took you to do that. And you would think it would be pretty objective. You would think that, that I would look at that and see these other guys lifting a whole lot more weight than I do, and that, that I would say they are stronger and fitter than I am. But oftentimes I'm kind of like, you know, I kind of had a bad day. Maybe next week I can get them. It's interesting. It's interesting that we, how we judge and how we evaluate people. What about preachers? Some of you, even this morning, may be thrown off that I'm not wearing sleeves on my shirt. What's next? Skinny jeans and tennis shoes? VJ says yes. <laughs> Oftentimes, we, we even notice maybe how preachers dress and then we assume things about them versus listening to what they have to say and, 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 and maybe judging them how we're supposed to judge them, which is based upon the Word of God. I'm just trying to point out, just trying to point out that there are many ways and there are many motivations for how we judge and how we interpret people and their actions. One of the things that I see very often in the counseling room is that people have created a narrative about someone or something. And so I may hear these words, and I always challenge people who use these words all the time, and I just used it. The, the always or never thinking. That, that Some people may come in and they're like, life is always like this, or this person is always like this, or this person is never like this. And I always say there, that's not true. You can't make that claim always and never. Or else you're not leaving any room for growth. Sometimes people come into my office and they have somebody really close to them who, who maybe has done something that has disappointed them. And so they color that person completely in this negative light and they give no room for the reality that they may not be correct in how they're viewing their loved one. I've seen situations to where we can point out evidence that things aren't like what it seems, but yet people can be so entrenched in their narrative about somebody else that they just can't open their eyes and see that they may not be right. Isn't this what the Sanhedrin is doing to Jesus? As we've been studying through the book of Mark and as we've seen these religious leaders that they have become so entrenched in their narrative 
that despite any evidence to the contrary, they view Jesus in this one way, and for months and three years now, they have been seeking to kill Him. Two weeks ago, when we studied the passage where Jesus was before the Sanhedrin, and they asked Him the question, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And then He not only said, I am, but He doubled down and He said, and I'm way bigger than what you think that I am. Do you remember the reaction? They tore their clothes and they screamed and they said, blasphemy, let's kill Him. Today we have another judge. We have several other judges today. We have another person who is evaluating Jesus. As you heard read in our text today, Jesus was brought before Pilate. And I don't think Pilate had a preconceived notion of who Jesus was. There's no evidence in our text that, that, that Pilate was working from this narrative and he was just angry at Jesus. What we see out of Pilate is that Pilate's truth and Pilate's reality was all based on how Jesus would affect him. His judgment of Jesus, what he did with Jesus, would mean something to him personally and political. And what we're going to see, this is what we're going to see, is that because of this, the facts don't matter. Because of the way Pilate was viewing this, he wasn't really looking at the facts, looking at the truth, and evaluating Jesus fairly. No, what he was doing is saying, what is this going to mean for me? It's clear, Pilate was not concerned about justice or truth. Look at the first verse in chapter 15. Notice how quickly... Um, these religious leaders are moving. They had just made their own judgment on Jesus. And in 15.1 it says, Early in the morning the chief priest with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus they led him away and they delivered him to Pilate. You see the issue was is that the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders, they didn't execute people themselves. Now, sometimes we get in the Bible that they became so angry or outraged that they may pick up stones and stone somebody or they may do other things, but an official act like this, a governmental act of executing somebody, they didn't do this because they were too holy. They didn't want blood on their hands. And so we see them taking, them, taking Jesus to Pilate. They needed Pilate. They needed Pilate to execute Jesus. They needed Pilate, who was a governor from Rome over this area. They needed him to be the one who led this execution. They had already made their judgment in verse 64 and 65, as I referenced earlier. After he says, you've heard the blasphemy, how does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. spit on him, they blindfolded him, and they beat him. And now we see that they brought him to Pilate to be executed. Who is this Pilate? Who is this Pilate? This Pilate was a, a governor, so, so Rome was in control of, 
this, this, the Jewish land, the Jewish population, and when Rome would come over during this time and take over large areas of land, they would kind of let the people be, but they would appoint a governor or a ruler to come in and to, to, to watch over different provinces. And they were, they were really there to really for two things. One is to make sure taxes flowed back to Rome. And the other thing was to make sure that no insurrection or no major disruption came in this area that, that might trouble Rome. And so this is what Pilate was appointed for. This is why he was there. Normally, he's not in Jerusalem. Normally, he resides somewhere else. But during the Passover, uh, the other Gospels tell us that during the Passover, that Pilate would come in, the Roman officials would come into the city. And the reason being is that there were so many people coming into Jerusalem that they needed to be there to make sure that nothing bad happened. He did not want to look bad politically. And it's thought, and I think we see in this text, that Pilate was a weak person a weak individual, that he was insecure about his position. And I think this made, this bubbled up in him to this point to where he had no concern for Jesus or for justice. But I think what we see in this text is that his sole concern is how his handling of Jesus would make him look. You're familiar with this account. If you've read the Gospels, if you've gone to Easter service, you've heard this, right? And you know, and, and from the other Gospels, they, they pointed out um, more succinctly, we have it in our text in verse 14. Notice Pilate's reaction. Pilate says in verse 14, what evil, why, why crucify him? What evil has he done? In the other Gospels, we, we hear Pilate say things like this. I find no guilt in him. As Pilate has sat with Jesus, as he has questioned him, as he has listened to him, he says, I find no guilt in him. In fact, Pilate is constantly in this text trying to find a way to let Jesus go free without making it just Pilate setting him free. In verse 15, as Mark read earlier, we see that wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having scourged Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. But the Gospel of John tells us that he scourged Jesus in order that he might satisfy the crowd, and the crowd would say, that is enough, the punishment is enough, let him go. Pilate is being a weak Leader, He is not standing for justice. He is not evaluating Jesus fairly. He is evaluating the culture. He's evaluating the situation. And he's evaluating it in terms of what is best for him. It's no surprise. No surprise is it. We've known all along, we've seen all along in this text that the fix is in. It's a bogus trial. Jesus is completely innocent. Everybody knows it. They can't get their story straight. They can't find witnesses. But yet, 
The plan is in motion. He's not being evaluated honestly. Look at verses 3 and 4. The chief priest began to accuse him, Jesus, harshly. Then Pilate questioned him, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. And then Pilate, in verse 5, was amazed at his silence. And what we get from this text is we see that they're bringing many charges against him. And Pilate is telling him, speak for yourself. Do you see how many charges they're bringing against you? And notice again, verse 14, Pilate finds no guilt in the middle of all the argument of the chief priests, in the middle of all the charges that they bring, none of them hold any water. And you better believe it, if some of them would have held water and stuck, Pilate would have went with it because he was looking for the easy way out, but he couldn't find one. Look at verses 6 through 9. Again, Pilate, I think, looking for an easy way out. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner they requested. The man named Barabbas, notice this, had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder. And the crowd went up and began asking him to do as, they had been, as he had been accustomed to do for them. And Pilate answered them saying, look at him, he's looking for the easy way out. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? The murderous insurrectionist. The guilty. But here we have Pilate. Here we have Pilate. Instead of making the decision and standing firm, Allowed for this phony trial to go on. I mean, look at verse 10. You say, well, maybe he wasn't aware. Look at verse 10. For he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of what? Envy. And he would be complicit for sending Jesus to the cross because he knew that he wasn't guilty. He knew he didn't deserve this death. Notice, notice verse 11 through 13. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back at him, Crucify him. And that's what he did. Now, there's much more to this account. And if we were to read the other Gospels, the other Gospels fill in a lot more details. But Mark, in his typical style, doesn't give us all these details. He doesn't go into all the other things that took place in this interaction. Because I think what Mark wants us to do is to zero in on what is going on here and how these people are evaluating Jesus. And how these people are judging Jesus. And it's clear. It's clear. The innocent is being railroaded. Isn't it interesting 
Isn't it interesting, the craftiness of these um, chief priests? In verse 2, notice the question that Pilate asks. Notice Pilate doesn't ask the question, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That's what Jesus had been accused of hours before. Notice what Pilate asks. Pilate asks, are you the King of the Jews? And this might be a little bit of speculation, but I think it's true. I think that when they brought Jesus to Pilate, they used this charge. He says he's the King of the Jews to stir up in Pilate. Uh Uh-oh. If the Jews have a king, there may be trouble. Maybe they're going to start an insurrection. Maybe they're going to start some chaos. And so Pilate is leaning in and saying, "Uh uh-oh. We see the motivation here. His own political status. He doesn't need this to get to Rome. He needs to handle this quietly. He needs to handle this quietly. So that he is looked at as a good governor. Notice Jesus' strange answer to this question. When Pilate asked him directly, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, it is as you say. And and this is is an interesting answer. What Jesus is not saying is, uh, no, I'm not, but you say that I am. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying, you said it, not me, so you can't charge me with anything. Linguistically, and according to the context, what we see is that what Jesus is saying here, there is a weirdness in this answer. What Jesus is saying goes along the lines of something like this. Yes, but. That Jesus is affirming He is the King of the Jews, But he's also relating to Pilate, but it's not like you think. Again, in the other Gospels, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He explains this a little more, but Mark doesn't give us that. Mark just gives us this vague answer to Pilate's question where Jesus doesn't launch into this this, this full rebuttal kind of like he did with the scribes and the Pharisees a few hours earlier. Jesus says, Yeah, but you don't understand. Again, speculation, but it's almost like Jesus is saying, yes, but you don't get it. You're just not going to get it. And so Pilate joins the club. He misses who Jesus is. He doesn't see him correctly. He evaluates him wrongly. And isn't this the theme of the book of Mark? That Jesus is constantly displaying, putting on display who he is. And the call is for those who see and hear and are who are around him to answer who is this man. And over and over again, unfortunately, we get people just like Pilate who just don't. Jesus just doesn't fit the mold. I mean, think about what he's been called. Even the Jewish leaders would call Jesus things like rabbi, teacher. We know that you have been sent from God for no one can do the things you do. But they don't believe 
who he is. They don't believe who Jesus claims that he is. And what about our day? What about our world? I hear people all the time talking about Jesus as special, a prophet, a holy man, spiritual, but yet deny who he is. Pilate is not the only one in our text that is not understanding who Jesus is. Notice, notice in this text, in this account, what we have is that Jesus was on trial before Pilate, and then notice that Jesus is also on trial before a crowd. Do you see that? That the crowd could have let him go. The crowd could have said, release Jesus for us. But instead, they wanted Barabbas. And then when asked, what do we do with this man? The crowd says, crucify him. You may ask, what would have been their motivation? What is it that they weren't seeing? What was maybe going on inside of them? And and we don't always know, but I think maybe it went something like this. I think as they saw Jesus, and they saw what a difficult time He was going through, that I think maybe, just maybe, in their minds, that they thought the Holy One, the Messiah, the One who was going to come and save them, would have an easy road. That nothing like this would be happening to the Messiah of Israel. I mean, think about it. Think about it. Many of these people had heard His teaching. Had flooded to Him. Many of these people maybe had heard of His healings. Some of them may have even seen some of the miracles that took place. Remember, just a few days earlier, Jesus enters into Jerusalem And the city is abuzz about this Jesus. And what might He do while He's here? And something's changed. Something's changed. Now look at Him. This man that they thought had come to take away all their troubles and to release them from the captivity of Rome was a captive himself. This man who had come to judge Rome for the horrific acts that they had committed against God's people was being judged and condemned by Pilate. This man who was supposed to be the almighty, the king, the conquering warrior, notice, was bound. Had been slapped had been punched in the face, had been spit upon. So I think as the crowd stood there and looked, and they saw him beaten and bound and judged, they thought, huh, what a Savior. As they saw him and that his own fate was not in his own hands, but that his fate was in the hands of of Pilate, maybe they were asking themselves, is this a Savior? Speculation, on my part, a lot of speculating here, 
But in verse 11, where it says the chief priest stirred up the crowd, I think that they stirred up the crowd with this narrative. Is this your idea of a king? Snap out of it. This is no king. Look at him up there. He's a prisoner. Is this the one who is supposed to free us from Rome? Look at how weak he is. These people who had such high hopes for this Messiah are now seeing him in this state. And I think that it was enough to push them over the edge. And they said, absolutely not. He is not our king. Crucify him. Crucify him. I wonder if we misinterpret Jesus or if we evaluate him wrongly. I wonder if we, instead of seeing him as the sovereign, powerful Lord in whom we are to follow, when things get tough, instead of following, we begin to question. We begin to back away. We begin to, in our own hearts and minds, to say, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how it's supposed to be done. Do we falter when we don't understand? Or what about in the midst of a crisis? Jesus was in a crisis and he was silent. He wouldn't even answer the questions. And what about in the times in your life where maybe there's a crisis going on and you feel like he is silent? Does that create panic? Does that create distrust? Do you run from him? You see, I think sometimes, even in the midst of suffering, when we ask Jesus to just eradicate the suffering immediately, and when Jesus doesn't answer our cries in the way that we want Him to, in the timing that we want Him to, we begin to doubt His power, we begin to doubt His goodness, and we begin to doubt His Lordship. Because just like them, we can't see that there is a plan that's unfolding. If you study this passage carefully, you'll see that there's a word that's repeated three times. When you study your Bible, if there are words that are repeated, you should take note of that. That the author is trying to tell you something. And there's a word that's repeated three times in these 15 verses. And see if you can pick it up. In, well, I'm going to tell you. You don't have to pick it up. In chapter 15, verse 1. It says, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. In verse 10. For he was aware that the chief priest had delivered him over. That's the word in the original language. Because of envy. And then in verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them after having Jesus scourged. And he handed him over or delivered him over to be crucified. In chapter 14, the chapter that comes before 15, see the brilliance there? This word delivered is used five times. In the Gospel of Mark, this word is repeated 16 times. 16 times. And I want you to notice, we're not going to go through all 15, but I want you to see something here that I think is very important. 
You don't have to turn here. I'll read it for you. But at the very beginning of this gospel in Mark chapter one, in verse 14. Now, after John had been delivered into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. That from the very beginning of this gospel, that Jesus' ministry, as Jesus, as it was announced that Jesus is going into Galilee to preach the gospel of God, what we have going on is the forerunner, John, being delivered over, being handed over. And then it's interesting, in chapter 3, we get this same word when the disciples are chosen. Very interesting, in verse 19, it lists all the disciples, and then in verse 19, when it gets to Judas Iscariot, it says, and Judas Iscariot, who, the word here is betrayed, but in the original language, it's the same word that's repeated, who delivered him. In chapter 9, verse 31, the first time that we have Jesus predicting his death, Jesus uses the words, they, uh, the Son of Man will be delivered. In chapter 10, the same word is used as Jesus again is talking about his uh, death and his resurrection. He says the Son of Man will be delivered. And in chapter 13, where Jesus is talking about the future of disciples and what life will look like for his disciples, he uses this word again that says they will be delivered. It's the way of the kingdom. It's the plan. There's something bigger going on here. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, which prophesies this event hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, in Isaiah 53, this same word is used two times. Jesus will be delivered, or the, the, the talking about Jesus. He will be delivered over. He will be handed over on the account of our sins. Brothers and sisters, it's no accident that we get to this place. We get to this place. And Jesus is being handed over. But what I want you to hear is that it's not as if Jesus is all of a sudden not in control. It's not if all of a sudden that Jesus lost his power and couldn't call down angels or himself create miracles to get out of this. But Jesus is allowing himself to be handed over because it's part of the plan. And here, as we look at the book of Mark and as we back away and we see this word used over and over and over again, and we know that he could have stopped it. But because of his love for you, because of the joy that is set before him. Because of his desire to do his father's will. that He allows himself to be delivered. And, and I want you to see and I want you to feel this. The last time this word is used in this gospel is verse 15. And wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having him scourged, he handed him over. The final handing over. He was delivered over to be crucified. There's another word that's repeated in this gospel. 
51 times. We talked about it at the beginning of the book of Mark. And that's this word immediately. That Mark uses it to move the story along. Immediately, immediately, immediately. And what we see in this gospel is that the last time, the 51st time this word is used is in chapter 15, verse 1. And I think what Mark is wanting us to do as these two themes are coming together, and this is Jesus being delivered over, and things are moving quickly, that we get here and we're supposed to just pause. It's happening. It's taking place. Nothing will be the same again. Everything will change. And think about it. There are many people that are here and they're watching. The Sanhedrin has handed him over. And maybe they're thinking, maybe they're thinking, finally, we've gotten rid of this nuisance. We can get our life back to normal. But little did they know what was getting ready to happen. Then there's Pilate as he's watching on, as he has handed him over and Jesus has been handed over and maybe Pilate is thinking like, Whew, I dodged a bullet here. Finally, things can just get back to the way they were and I can just go on about my business. But little did Pilate know what was about to happen. And what about all the people that were saying, crucify Him, crucify Him. Little did they know. Little did they know what their cries were going to do and what their cries would fulfill. They're not mentioned in this text because they're not here. But what about the disciples? The disciples have scattered they're in hiding. We talked about Peter last week. Peter's nowhere to be found. And maybe as Jesus has been finally handed over and delivered, that maybe they're hearing rumors. And they're scared. Fearful. Bewildered. Little did they know what was getting ready to happen. And there's another group that's watching. If we were to go to 1 Peter, there's this odd verse. It's not an odd verse. It's a glorious verse about the angels gazing into something that is so deep that they're unaware. And I think that the angels are watching on at this moment, except they are in anticipation to the glory that is getting ready to be revealed. And they're saying, finally. I can't wait for what is getting ready to happen. And then you have Jesus Himself who knew the pain He was getting ready to go through, knew the agony that He was getting ready to go through. But God's Word tells us, but for the joy set before Him, He would endure the cross. And in that mixture of anticipation of pain and separation and everything that He was going through, that Jesus at this moment, as time stood still, as he was finally delivered over, was thinking 
of the joy was thinking of the plan. The innocent dying as a ransom for the guilty. I hope you know how to evaluate him correctly. How are you evaluating Jesus this morning? I pray that even this morning that God may open some some of your eyes to who this Christ is and that you would follow him. You would deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him no matter where it would take you. And as time stops here in our text, I can't wait for you to see what happens next. I can't wait for you to know the implications of what happens next. At one level, it's the most gut-wrenching, horrific thing that has ever happened. And on another, more significant level, it's the greatest act that has ever happened and it has changed everything. Will you trust Him? Will you see the truth of the Gospel? Or will your pride or convenience or your narrative keep you from seeing who Christ is? Will you see Him for who He is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are dealing with sacred things, holy things. God, I pray this morning that we will see you for who you are. I know we do not, we see now through a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face, but God, you have given us your word, you've given us your spirit so that we can grow in our knowledge of who you are. And I pray that those who are here that are believers this morning would grow in our knowledge of who you are and that we would evaluate you more clearly. That we would let you and your word teach us about you and that we wouldn't stand over it making judgments on you. And God, I pray this morning that just maybe if somebody's here and they've never placed their hope and trust in you and that they have thought wrong thoughts about you for a really long time, that today may be the day that they see you more clearly. And I pray you would give them boldness to reach out to me or another leader or elder in this church to have those life-changing conversations. God, we ask for all of this. It's only possible because of your son who died for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.